welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the writers, directors, producers, cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, film editors, choreographers, you name it. Uh, and, and of course, actors. Uh, and we talked to them. And we've had a lot of really interesting, interesting guests on the show in these almost seven years. Um, with many more already come, booked for the rest of this year. And inquiries into next. So I can't wait for you to meet a lot of our upcoming talent. And talk about meeting some of our talent. Some interesting filmmakers today for you. Joining us live at the midpoint of the show is going to be Corey Wexler Grant. Here to talk about it, his directorial debut. He's writer-director of this psychosexual thriller called Painter. It is delicious. It is a stunner. It is about obsession, jealousy, rage. And every frame is as gorgeous as the next. It stars Betsy Randall. You know her best is Amy Matthews on Boy Meets World. Trust me, she's no Amy Matthews in this film, Painter. She's channeling a very dramatic Shirley MacLaine crossed with Gloria Swanson, in all honesty. Uh, Eric Layden, the object of her obsession. Casey Diedrich, who is one of the nicest guys on the planet. Uh, with some smaller role, a smaller role by Susan Anton, uh, which is interesting. But Corey's going to join us at the midpoint of the show, and I can't wait to talk to him because I've already spoken with Betsy at length and Casey, both of whom had wonderful things to say about Corey and Betsy with her years of experience on stage and screen, big screen, small screen, and the theater. Um, she has gave me some really good insight into Corey's process of filmmaking uh, with the paint with painter. So I can't wait to talk to Corey. But before we get to Corey, we're switching things up. I was gonna gonna run our entire Brian Duffield interview today, talking about spontaneous. Um, we may run part of that today. Um, it's definitely going to go up on YouTube and on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Um, a point about Brian, for those of you that haven't seen Spontaneous yet, it's digital and VOD, see it. It's hilarious, it's fabulous, it's funny, with Katherine Langford, Charlie Plummer. But op- what just opened on Friday is one of my favorite picks of the year. It is pure family fun. It is love and monsters Written by Brian, uh, a lot. He's a co-writer on it, and directed by Michael Matthews. Co-written with Matthew Robinson. The story is uh, Brian uh, is credited with the story, uh, directed by Michael Matthews. It is so much fun. It uh, stars Dylan O'Brien, Jessica Henwick, Michael Rooker. You got Rooker. You don't need anything else. One of the best dogs, uh, I think I love this this dog called Boy in the film almost as much as, as Lassie, if not more. Um, just a f- so much fun. Creatures, the monster, monster apocalypse has happened. Um, we're so used to post-apocalyptic films that are downtrodden, downbeat. Everything is gray. Everything is miserable. This film has so much life and energy to it. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you've seen Spontaneous, see Love and Monsters. If you've seen Love and Monsters, go back and see Spontaneous. But be it on this show or offline on YouTube or BehindTheLensOnline.net, you're going to hear from Brian Duffield. And also... He created and wrote the first film, uh, slasher horror film, The Babysitter, comedy, The Babysitter, which now is out on Netflix, The Babysitter Killer Queen, with his original characters and the original premise following through on the sequel, which he could not write because he was working on Spontaneous. 
Uh, so it all comes together. But fabulous fun for the whole family. Love and monsters. Same thing with spontaneous. Um, and now we're going to talk about a film called Tar. How many of you out there, you've been to the La, La Brea Tar Pits, you've heard about the La Brea Tar Pits, um, you've driven by on Wilshire Boulevard, you've seen the, the tar, you know, bubbling up with those ever-sinking elephants, you know, mammoths sinking lower outside of uh, what, <laughs> what used to be the L.A. County Museum of Art right next door. Um, for those of you who haven't been around, a lot of that has now been destroyed, and they're building uh, new digs for it. No pun intended there. Um, but the Rea Tar Pits are so cool. Once everything reopens, uh, if you haven't been there, go. It's really fascinating, very interesting. And what, Aaron, I first got really interested in things like the Tar Pits, uh, when I was in elementary school, a very, very wise sixth grade teacher, Howard Glazerman, uh, really opened up the world of archaeology and anthropology to me. And it's, it's a love I've never given up. It is, it is one of my secret passions. So when I first came to California almost 40 years ago, one of the first places I had to go was, you know, La Brea Tar Pits. And it does not disappoint and I even at the time, and I don't know if they still do it, but in the 80s, there was a point during the summer where they opened up the pits because there are several working digs that are that go on there. And you can actually volunteer and participate in digs into, you know, saber-toothed tiger teeth and little bones and all kinds of fun things. And I did that. Uh, and it's always one of the one of the best things, most fun I've ever had. And, but now we have Aaron Wolf who comes up with this bright idea, who also is fascinated with the tar pits. And as he explained to me when I spoke with him the other day, it all comes down to what if tar is still bubbling up. Yes, we've all seen Volcano and Tommy Lee Jones, where a volcano actually rises up in the tar pits from the, uh, from the tar pits. But it makes you wonder. Things are because things are still quote unquote percolating, and you've got all the tunneling of the subway and, and rail lines happening underneath Wilshire Boulevard, which is the tar pits run right along there. And if we're still finding all kinds of things and there is still the bubbling of tar, what if? What if there's more under there? What if there is legend? What if there are Native American spirits. It's all about what if. And Aaron takes that idea of what if and crafts this tale of a family, three generations that have had their their repair business, electronic repair business, right there on Wilshire Boulevard, right near the tar, across from the tar pits. Um, they're being forced to move out. Eventually the building's going to get torn down for all the construction that's going on there. But there's legend and there's stories. And were they real? Were they stories that uh, this man, Zach, that his grandfather had told him, that his father had told him? And it all revolves around an ancient myth about the tar man, who when he gets disrupted, he comes back. Now, with everything that's going on construction-wise in L.A., right there on Wilshire, what do you think happens? We got a tar man in some form that may or may not be coming back. It's engaging. The premise is what drives this film. Uh, not to mention Graham Greene, who adds such a level of authenticity. Uh, he more or less plays the narrator of the ancient tales. Uh, Timothy Bottoms, who we rarely ever see, uh, he appears, Aaron Wolf is also, not only is he writing and directing this, but he also stars in it as Zach Greenwood. Timothy Bottoms plays his father. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Aaron Wolf as we talk about 
Tar. Hey, Aaron. Debbie, so nice to meet you. So nice. So nice to phone meet you too, Aaron. So, have you gotten all the tar off of you yet? No, I have not gotten all the tar off of me. Um, I have a funny story about that, if you want. Oh, tell tell me the tar story. (laughs) All right, I'll tell you the tar story first. So, um, in filming the the movie, we had all kinds of different obstacles. It's an independent film, so there's a lot of different different tricks that we do to, to get this going. And one of them was make gallons and gallons of tar. So, our special effects artist had gallons of gallons of tar and it stuck to you so much it was like a um bad halloween costume it just stuck to you like forever uh and so yeah some days you know you wash it off and then you go home and shower and then uh one day i went to get food after the filming and i went to the market midline and i'm checking out with some uh late night snack and then the cashier woman looked at me like I was uh, crazy. And I said, is there anything wrong, ma'am? I, I don't know what, did I do anything? And she said, she just looked at me like she'd seen a ghost. And I said, I- I'm sorry, like, is there, are you okay? Is everything okay? And she looked at me that way. And then she motioned to her neck. And I was like, are you, is your neck okay? And then I touched mine and I realized I had forgotten to wash off the tar from all of my body and (laughs) my face was covered in tar and she looked at me like I was some sort of crazy person (laughs) and then uh and I said oh my gosh and instead of trying to explain because it was like how do you explain we're making this movie and so on I just looked at her I grabbed my food and I said I'm really sorry and I ran through the exit as fast as I possibly could (laughs) Well, it definitely looked like it was uh, very adhesive tar because you've got a really great close-up shot of your in-character as Zach and you're coming up behind, trying to come up behind the the tar creature and there's a close-up of your foot and it will not release your foot. (laughs) Uh, No. So, I mean, I I just love, I love that shot. Because I just thought that was so funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> it will not release my foot. You know, I've got to ask you, Aaron, where did the idea for this film come from? I love the premise. I love the whole idea. It's something that is always, it's the kind of story that's always crossed my mind every time I've been to the tar pits. I've actually, years ago, I would go in the summers and actually participate in the digs for the oh, act, wow. for the no active way. active pits there. Uh, and there's tar. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, uh, so I'm curious, where did the idea for this come from? Because anybody that studies any kind of archaeology uh, or anthropology of the region is, you're going to have to wonder with everything that's stuck in the tar and over the decades, the more and more creatures that are found where skin is intact, hair is intact, it bodes the what if. Exactly. The what if is exactly what inspired me. And it's exactly what inspired you to be interested in the place in the first place. When I was a little kid, I loved watching the Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. They were my uh, favorite movies, watching them over and over again. And I wanted to be a filmmaker, an actor, and an archeologist all at once. And pretty unrealistic uh, <laughs> series of, series of uh, careers, but it was what I wanted. And so I'd also always go, I grew up in Los Angeles, like you're talking about, and I would go to the Tarpits with the class trips all the time where my folks would take me. And when I go to the tar pit, I was like, this is a real Indiana Jones movie. This is so cool. And I'd always create scenarios in my head of what could be. I didn't get to dig like you did, but I would just create scenarios, look at the digs, and I just thought, this is so cool. And then I'd create movies in my backyard around them. And then, so when it came time, when it was like, oh, we can make a movie about this, our office happened to be for Hollywood Productions happened to be right down the street. And we'd walk by it every day. 
and I had an idea for some sort of fun throwback horror thriller adventure fun movie that's back to the movies that I really liked as a kid um, that had a lot more fun and family element like our movie mm-hmm. and uh, I thought what if we use the tar pits what if that becomes the focal point and then I found out about a true Native American legend around the tar pits about what happens underneath the tar pits so all these pieces added up to we gotta make this movie and the tar pits have never been a focal point of a film before which I was shocked about so I was like we're gonna do this and I wanna make it a fun adventure just like uh, the stuff I loved as a kid and how fortuitous that they're building a subway under Wilshire Boulevard as you are going to make your film. I know, isn't that crazy? So that's what part of the the story is that man awakens the creature and the creature of the underneath it because it's unrest becomes great and it attacks the family. The family is uh, I always use things that are based a little bit on my life because I think that's how I can relate most to the characters. So it's about a small family business that's going under, and it specifically goes and attacks a bunch of people, but it attacks the family business and the people working there who are having to leave because they're getting shut down by the man in the L.A. subway system. And I've always been interested in that subject, too, and family dynamic and my family is immigrants, so coming from other places to the U.S. and trying to make sign of yourself and then very topical right now getting shut down mm-hmm. and how do you how do you survive as a family now how do you survive as a family when uh the, when things from the tar come at you uh well that that is uh that is something we're not seeing today <laughs> yes yes well who knows maybe we are and we don't know it uh, maybe that's the next thing for 2020 it could be uh you know i have to i was so thrilled to see graham green the role that you give him as quote unquote a narrator to te- to give the whole premise to tell the history of the tar pits the story the native americans fabulous the authenticity factor that graham brings to this is through the roof and i love seeing him you could have had him in the film more for my money um oh he would uh so for if we are fortunate enough to be able to make a next one, um, the uh, Graham is massively central in the next one because he, uh, um, we were really, I'm really glad that we got him to be in it. He was actually the only person I'd ever thought of for the character. Yeah. Because he's someone that I grew up, you know, watching his movies and thinking this guy's amazing. So then when we got to know each other and become friends, uh, and he agreed to do it, he, uh, I, it's exactly what I wanted. I wanted someone who was, who brought an authenticity and, and isn't usually in a uh, throwback adventure or mm-hmm. movie like this. So it, it really was awesome to work with him both as directing him and as an actor, just learning from him because he's so uh, he's so special in what he brings, and uh, and you always want to have the audience. Uh, wanting more right so i hope people want more of him because uh that's what will happen <laughs> oh, well i would love to see more of graham uh, but you know i've got to ask you because here you are you're wearing so many hats in this one you're co-writer with tim you're directing this and you're acting in it and you are in a very large chunk of the film irrespective of the stupefied zach insets as i call them because it is a stupefied look on on Zach's face. Um, so how did you go about juggling, from a production standpoint, juggling the writer-director, forget about producer, writer-director, actor hats, um, particularly with dialogue and with your camera setups, with your blocking, working with your cinematographer, I'm curious about how all of that came together for you because this is, it's action heavy. Uh, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of set changes um, from room to room to room to corridor to corridor to corridor. So how did you handle all of that? So to me, I look at it all as storytelling. So how can we best 
tell the story. So from a directorial standpoint, I'd look at it that way. Then when I was in front of the camera or rehearsing with the actors like Graham or Timothy Bottoms, who I have, who plays my dad in the mm-hmm. movie, who I have a lot of uh, scenes with, we um, we would rehearse like. And it's independent, so actually the, everyone would come to my to my condo, and that's where we'd rehearse. And then, uh, and then we'd go to set, feel pretty prepared. Then you know you get on the in front of the camera, come up with some new ideas, and then that was it. Like that was so for me the perform. Like I knew what visually we wanted. We work. It was like two separate jobs. It's just like having two separate jobs to create a story for me. And a second piece to it was it was a lot easier because as you said there's a lot of different locations and more locations than you probably even realize in the film um so because of different obstacles so we i could make myself available to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever i needed and so when there were different juggling pieces that had to happen well i could be available to do them Mm-hmm. And then the, the final the final piece of why I did it is Timothy Bottoms, who is another actor who I grew up watching his movies like in film school and stuff. And I really wanted him because I thought he brought a different sort of uh, legitimacy to the film that he, he you don't see him in these kind of movies. Actually, he's kind of retired. And so I, when I was trying to lure him into this, he uh, was kind of. You know, I don't know. Do I really want to do it? Just like uh, he's kind of a rancher, and so then I said, you know, I you play my dad, and then he said, oh, you're going to be my son in it. You know what? I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think that would be the reason, but great. <laughs> so I'm cu- I'm curious, Aaron. I always I always like to ask uh, actor directors this question. You know how how well did actor direct did actor Aaron take direction from director Aaron, uh, and you know how well did director Aaron actually direct actor Aaron? Oh, that, so I have to take away. I've acted since I was probably seven, mm-hmm. and um, I had to take away the judgmentalness I mean the uh, the sorry the like actor in me the moment that the camera stopped rolling mm-hmm. and look at the monitor and look at myself not as me but as did I deliver or did I not because there's right. a lot of times when I didn't and I'd be like you know I gotta switch something up there and I'd also ask my fellow actors so I'd say to fellow actors or other people on the set what did you think like did that hit these notes or not they're like like Graham who you brought up a bunch so like with him I'd say so like did you feel it did it feel like what we needed and a lot of times he'd say no Aaron like let's try that again just go again and so then I'd just go again I wouldn't even look at the monitor so it's really a collaborative process because I'm really only as good as the other people around me mm-hmm. so that was my way of directing myself and then sometimes I could see I'd go to the monitor I'd be like nope that, I did not hit that uh, the way that it needed to happen. I got to go again. So it's just, it's really taking any and all, um, I guess, ego out of it, if maybe is the right word, and just being, being able to say, I didn't do well there. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, nailed that one. That was cool. <laughs> and uh, that, so that was really what I would do. You know, I've got to ask, I've got to ask you about your blend of your sound design, your sound mix with your scoring. Connor Jones has given you some really nice scoring in here using drums. You pick up the Native, uh, the native American uh, instrumentality and sounds in there. And then you've got the overlay of the creature sounds. How challenging was it, number one, for Connor to, to give you music that was is that appropriate? And then finding the perfect sound for this creature because it's a really cool sound <laughs> uh, well with with the sound I really wanted authenticity in the Native American world so we actually went for some of the scoring we went out to Arizona and had some uh, professional Native American singers 
enchanters do some of the background vocals that you hear in the film because to me that was very important and mm -hmm. Connor was very important and Connor did a fantastic job with what the guy he went to the Berkeley School of Music and he's a he's just a real young talent and uh and so it was great working with him on that and going out and working you know going and learning I actually learned a lot because I, I said to uh, some of the performers that I was working with the Native American performers I said like what do you think what how would how would this sound to give it sort of a spooky fun vibe and, and, and keep the momentum going and they'd give me different ideas so that way different chants and stuff like that so it was it was actually a great learning experience. I knew what I wanted, mm -hmm. but I also didn't know exactly what I wanted because you only know as much as you know until you know more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that you do in here that uh, I wish ho more horror films would actually do, and that's you really pace out us getting to see the tar creature. We get a shadow, or we eventually we get a hand or a claw or a stick or a spear that it's carrying. How challenging was the edit process to give us little bits, little bits, like, you know, a carrot on a stick dangling until you finally start giving us the, the full reveal? That's a great question because it's really important to me. Uh, I am not a big fan of when films just within the first 10 minutes you kind of know everything and it's just a lot of visual effects that's mm -hmm. why we used a lot of practical effects in the film as well because i i don't per, i like the movies that build where you're where there's a lot of wonderment and your imagination's running wild until you get different reveals uh, both with some character pieces in the film and definitely with the creature and i it's like, uh, you know, the, the be-all, end-all amazing movie that started that concept was Jaws. And that, what I thought was so brilliant about that movie, when I've watched it a zillion times, is how you don't see the shark till the end. And I like that. I like, I know right now it's popular to just give a ton of, effects right away and everything's CGI and there's lots of deaths and ghosts and whatever it might be in a horror movie. Well, I wanted more of a throwback feel and that build was so important to giving, I think, that throwback feel that we're not... And the build of suspense, the build of wonderment, the build of the imagination so that then we can be wondering and then, of course, we have to give a payoff so we give it. But mm -hmm. it's, um, I don't know about you. I just, I really, that's... I love. I just feel like that's a lot more fun. Yeah, I love that. That's like the horror film Jeepers Creepers came out many years ago. The first one, I absolutely love that because we did not get to see the creature until well into the third act. You got shapes, that's right. and you got shapes and shadows, and that's what you do here. And I love that because then it really does. You catch your breath when the face or whatever is finally revealed. Um, and then it, in all its graphic detail. And I have to tell you, when you do finally reveal, it's a lot of graphic yeah. detail. Uh, you know, who designed the look of the, of the creature? Yeah, the, and thank you. I appreciate it because Jeepers Creepers is actually a good example of where they really get the build. And uh, the Kazu, so our makeup artist, Kazu, he is uh, a Japanese special effects artist and we had ideas and I had a concept of what I wanted but I am far from a special effects makeup artist and wouldn't even know where to start I can barely draw a stick figure so I you know he started to do different renderings this was early in the process it's like what are we going to make this look like and there were things ideas that I had and concepts but I can't draw or so I just had to explain it to him, and then he's the one who really brought it to life. Uh, he's the one who used all his talents in the visual effects world to make this creature and the details come to life. There were pieces that I don't want to give away, but there are pieces of the, the creature that it was like, oh, I want this, 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 and this. And then beyond that, it was like, it's collaboration. I'm, you know, he's 
I'm only as good as what he's able to bring to the to the table, mm-hmm. and and I believe he really uh, is just a super talented guy who did so much to to make this creature come to life with practical um, with a practical design. Yeah, no, I I uh, love it. It I, took a long time to to do it. Like there, this was one of those. Uh, challenging aspects of the movie because there's just a lot of stuff going on that do the creep to have it not be a digital creature mm-hmm. and uh um yeah so it definitely led to some i'll say messy moments <laughs> well one last question before i let you go aaron i've got to ask you what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making tar that you will now take forward or can take forward into your future work? Um, I learn every day, Debbie. There isn't a day I don't learn when I'm working. I hope I bring stuff to the table that other people learn from, and then I also just keep learning. So this was just a massive learning experience of what we can and can't do with different budgetary constraints of what... um, of, of working with great actors like these, and I've had the privilege of working with some other, you know, older great actors in the past. And so they taught me on an acting perspective just some things to do with the camera that were that I'll forever use. And then as an overall filmmaker, uh, just to continue to evolve to be as efficient as possible on set in making sure the story comes to life. Because with independent, and I hope next time we have more budget, because uh, <laughs> independent, so the more budget, the better. Man, that's the big thing I learned too, is uh, raise more money or, or have a bigger budget, because uh, without the big, without a little bit more money, it just adds to more problems oh. that you have to solve. So it's a, it's a big thing that, I, like, I'll, I mean, I'll take to my, my grave all the stuff I've learned, because this was basically one big lesson. Well, um, I'm so glad you learned. I'm glad you learned your lessons, Aaron, and I'm glad that you learned how to make tar, literally and figuratively. Um, this has been a joy talking to you this morning. I can't wait till we do it again. We will. I can't wait for the next uh, film too, because it's been a joy talking to you, and I love all the pointed uh, things you asked me because it's very interesting to self-analyze different aspects of it and I really hope people have a good time with the movie and have a fun escape during these crazy times because that's what it's uh, designed for and it may actually inspire some people to go visit the tar pits and that too which both of us loved as uh, kids so yes yeah, we'll go visit the tar pits when they're back open that's <laughs> what I'll say and that was an exclusive conversation with Aaron Wolf writer director And let me say, he is co-writer, just so you all know, co-writer with Tim Nettle. Tim is also his producing partner. Um, Tar is available tomorrow on VOD and digital. So here's something else. Uh, And actually, the whole family can see it. Not little kids, but I'd say from, I'd say probably seven, eight years old on up. Uh, because of the family connective tissue within the film, uh, the whole lore and legend and kids like stuff like tar monsters. Trust me. Uh, so it's out tomorrow. But now we are going to move on. Let me flip to my to my correct note pages here. And we are going to welcome... The very, very talented Corey Wexler Grant. Corey. Oh, my gosh. What an intro. <laughs> what a film. Wow. Thanks, thanks, Debbie. Thank you. Wow. I was blown away with oh, come on. Painter. No, seriously. Um, Casey can thanks. tell you. Betsy can tell you. I've, t- I've talked to both of them at length uh, about the film. And this is, it is stunning to look at. There is a deliberateness to everything in this film. A deliberateness 
to every movement, every frame. Um, you use this. This is your cinematic canvas. You took that, the metaphor, the literal metaphor of painting and made this film from the production design to the symmetry of your camera angles, the framing, the use of lighting uh, as a storytelling tool, as an emotional tool. And you get into Betsy's performance and the character that the two of you created of Joanne. Uh, as I said yeah. at the top of the show, anybody that thinks they're going to see Amy Matthews here, <laughs> forget it. Forget <laughs> it. This is... But isn't that, isn't that the best? Oh. It's so great to watch, uh, you know, someone we think we're familiar with, actors we think we're familiar with, watch them blow our minds with a whole new thing that was inside them we didn't know was there. And, yeah, I, I think her performance is great. God, thank you for all those kind words, uh, I mean, Debbie. this really is an award-worthy performance by Betsy. Uh, there's, I agree. There is no question. As I'm watching her with the deliberateness, and as I told her, her hands, her hands are very expressive here. And she wasn't even, she did, wasn't even quite, she was going to go back and watch the film again because she wasn't quite sure if she had worked that into the character or just something was flowing through here. But it was almost as if, since she is this wealthy matron who is quote-unquote sponsoring this young artist and feeding his talent, the movements of her hands are akin to what Aldous's movements with a paintbrush are in shaping, oh. in sculpting, in painting. Uh, and these little details, Corey, just at every turn, you left no stone unturned here. And it, it just, and working with your, with your cinematographer, with Pierluigi mm. uh, Malavisi and your composer, but let's yeah. let's start with because I can gush about this film uh, all I'm, day I'm long. Just loving it. <laughs> um, it is it's the minutia. The devil is in the details, and the devil sure as hell comes out in this film. Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But where <laughs> where did this begin, Corey? You wrote, you directed. It's your first feature, and that's another whole different it's like oh my god this is the first film he's made um but yes. but tell me where did the idea for this story well, arise yeah i think i'm a i'm a pretty thick dark uh individual um clearly don't tell my kids clearly and, <laughs> clearly and uh it was just um kind of the culmination of you know 35 years uh, on this planet, being an artist, being an actor, uh, being a writer, and and uh, kind of taking all my jealousy and rage and envy and passion and uh, perseverance and putting it all into a script that I knew I could shoot. I wanted to write something that I knew I was going to direct, something makeable and small and intimate. And I wrote this thing in 11 days. And then... It took years of work to get it where it is now. Wow. But, I mean, this story in and of itself, and you waste no time in getting to the point. Uh, there's, no, there's no lengthy exposition or buildup. You jump right in, and by the 17-minute mark of this film, we have Aldous, our young painter, who is already at Joanne's house, and he starts wandering through this house and he's caught off guard as he walks into a room that is just filled, filled with famous art. This is not some woman who just has a thing for, a, you know, a 20 something year old paint, late twenties, uh, painter. No, this is a woman who knows her art, who collects her art and she puts her money where her mouth is. Definitely. Indeed. You wasted yeah. no dialogue, no anything. You show us this, but at the same time, and this is a testament to the visual design that you and uh, Pierluigi came up with, 
you have this soft diffuse light um, that goes from piece to piece as his eye is landing on something as he's perusing the room. The camera hesitates yeah. and it stops. It lingers. Um, it's almost like a caress. The movement is so soft uh, and punctuated oh. with that light. Just that tells us volumes. And that's 17 minutes into the film. <laughs> Corey. Yeah. You know, for, for your first film, I don't think you want to uh, do anything but distill. You know, this is your first uh, horse out of the gate. And I just wanted, uh, you know, uh, the original script was probably a two hour long movie. And uh, it just got cut down and cut down, you know, of course, because of budget. We shot the movie in 16 days. So we had no time for finding things organically. We just had to, I had to do a ton of storyboards, some 800 storyboards. And then uh, Pierre Luigi Malavasi, who's such a talent, uh, he turned my hideous storyboards into uh, exactly what I wanted it to be. And we love all the same movies. And we come at it, we both came at it from kind of a European sense mm -hmm. of uh, independent film. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed all that and said all that. It's really gratifying to hear uh, all of the hopes for the film be uh, explained and detailed so beautifully by you. You're, you're, you're a poet. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I, just, I just describe what I see. Um, but even, you know, we then get to the 29-minute mark. You've got, Betsy has a really great monologue at that point where the Shirley MacLaine in her really comes out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we have voiceover that, that picks up, and there's this gorgeous montage of, super, and you're using superimpositions, which I wish more people would use, uh, because they're such an elegant visual way of storytelling. Um, a lot. Thank you. A yeah, lot I feel of... that they have a. We tried to bring as much um, richness and depth as we mm -hmm. could to the movie, uh, especially in Joanne's house. And uh, she is a yes, an older woman, a benefactor, and an art collector. And we needed to give her as much gravity as possible. So yeah, we were shooting in some really gorgeous homes. Well, yeah, and you've got one scene around that half hour mark of where poor Aldous, you know. He falls asleep on the floor. He's been painting, painting, painting since he has taken advantage of her generosity and is painting in this gorgeous room in this house that has perfect light, that has a perfect setting. It is a blank canvas. It is all in white. Um, and he's fallen asleep, and you've got this gorgeous moonlight, and it's coming through these arch windows, very European elegance. And it looks like you've got, you're using a technocrane pan um, as you're coming in the room and, and coming down from the ceiling, from where the light is coming in, from the top portion of the light, uh, of the windows, down onto sleeping Aldous as Joanne is doing what Joanne does. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, hovering, doing lurk, lurking. lurk, and pine and lust. <laughs> yes, lurk, pine, lust. Yes, um, and obsess. Obsess. Oh, this whole film, it is all about obsession, jealousy. It is. Um, yeah. And on so many parts, because while we have the primary focus here being on Joanne's obsession with Aldous. Aldous is all is obsessed with becoming a successful painter, and his his obsession is driven by his jealousy for his former elementary schoolmate Ryan West, who is very successful, but he hates yes. him because he bullied him in elementary school. Um, yes, it speaks volumes as to okay, Aldous, you have your own problems, so. You know, maybe this is why Joanne was gravitating towards you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. These are very lost souls that find each other uh, to kind of experience and, and hopefully bring on their, their delusions of grandeur. Uh, you know, it, it is not um, ignorant of, of the world we live in where fame and money and success equals happiness in so many people's head, and they both want it. And it's, it's so well-crafted 
from a story standpoint, Corey, um, of how you interweave this. Uh, And I find it striking because bullying has been so much in the forefront. We see it unfolding in politics. We see it unfolding on the streets. Everybody complains about bullying, bullying, I'm being bullied. Um, There comes a point, though, you've got to man up and just say, my God, we were in sixth grade, fifth grade, fourth grade. We're, uh, you're now pushing 30. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Deal with your psychology, man. <laughs> Let it go. Uh, Get on antidepressants. Handle yourself. <laughs> but to watch the way you've integrated that within the character of Aldous, and it's a testament to Eric Layden, who plays Aldous, uh, beautifully yeah he does he plays the character so subtly so quietly very much an introvert but you can see anytime the name of ryan west is mentioned he tenses up his shoulders he gets his back up and he freezes until yeah. there are moments of extreme rage that do come out uh, yeah, I think uh, Eric Layden is a great actor, and and uh, you know I would say he was underrated if he's not if he wasn't so rated. He, everybody mm-hmm. thinks he's great, and he is great, and he's such a professional to work with. He just clicked into this role uh, right from the audition. He came into the room and just took the part, as did Betsy and Casey. Uh, they, uh, I was really blessed because we cast the thing only three weeks before day one of shooting. Wow. So, to have one great actor for every role come into your room, it was really dope. Well, and to watch the contrast that you have in casting Casey as Ryan West versus Eric. Um, yeah. From physicality to persona. Because Casey is the drop-dead gorgeous James Dean kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, who exudes cool. More cool than James he Dean is. and Fonzie he, put together. He he's a motorcycle rider. He is all the things that he looks like. <laughs> he is he is that charming. He is smooth. Uh, he's classy, and uh, you know you had to find we had to find someone who you loved to hate. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. don't and you don't really understand the hate for him. For this character, you really don't understand the hate beyond jealousy, other than the fact that we have people that really do have some troubling issues going on. (laughs) (laughs) It concerns me that you came up with these people, (laughs) Corey. (laughs) You know, I try on a daily basis to be a good person. (laughs) I fail mostly. (laughs) You know, once once you have all you have this cast, and I'd be remiss not to mention uh, that you get a nice performance from Spencer Irwin, who plays uh, the gallery manager, so to speak, of the art gallery that's owned by Susan Anton, who we barely see anymore, and Andre Hulis. Those two together are like oil and water. They're only on screen in what two scenes, but they're very yeah three def- scenes I think Max but oh, together yeah two scenes yeah but they're very defining and that's and very deliberate and here again that goes back to this deliberateness with everything in this film everything is calculated just like every move that Joanne makes it's calculated every move that Eric makes it's calculated. Everything. Yeah. It's not. Nobody's flying by the seat of their pants, except maybe Ryan West, um, <laughs> who's just coasting more, coasting through life. He's just coasting. But you've got that powerful bar scene uh, between uh, with Casey and Betsy together at the bar, yeah. and so much comes out. And that's really the only scene where Casey gets to talk because things happen, and <laughs> they do. And we're we're kind of beyond words at the point things start happening. But I'm yeah, you know, it's, you definitely it's about um, we try to keep a really you know a tight, taut story until it can't handle it anymore, <laughs> and then you know the the rope phrase. 
and breaks and uh, hell unleashes to a certain extent. Uh, it's by the time you get to um, the one nineteen mark, after jo- yeah. Joanne has done her, has given all this his gift. Um, shall, shall we say by that one nineteen yes. mark, it is balls out for the rest of the film. Yeah, but, but there I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a theater person. I came from the theater, and so in my first feature, I, I used the tool I knew best to kind of uh, tell a story, and that's dialogue. And so I lucked out to get um, a group of actors on on my film, my first film that appreciated theater, came from the theater and wanted, you know, six pages of dialogue meet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think they pull it off so beautifully. Oh my God. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate all the words you said about, uh, being deliberate because you hope as a filmmaker, especially on your first, that your production and your camera work and your score match your story and that you're all playing in the same symphony. So I'm glad it came off deliberate because it's a deliberate story, you know, told by deliberate, deliberate characters. You know, talk to me about working with Pierre Luigi and coming up with your visual tonal bandwidth, because this truly and it's kudos to your production designer, to Alex. Um, yeah, because Constable. Pierre Luigi's filming just showcases the production design so beautifully. Uh, but I'm very, very interested in how you came up with the visual tonal bandwidth, with the use of light, with this decision for the perfect symmetry of framing yeah. or the slow I think, you camera know, first movement. It's a movie about art, mm-hmm. so we have to be artistic. We have to be deliberate. And uh, the movies that I was watching and kind of thinking about in terms of color and tone and feel were... Steve McQueen, Hunger and Shame, uh, Jonathan Glazer's Birth, uh, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, anything by David Fincher. Uh, And when I brought all my stills to Pierre Luigi and we had our first meeting, a shorthand developed immediately because we love all the same movies and we love all the same directors and cinematographers. So we we just kind of coasted together Agreeing and agreeing and agreeing every day. It was it was a pleasure, a real easy time, and I can't wait to work with him again, man. He's a treat. Well, a very uh, one element of this film that really taps into the senses without that I don't think people are really going to realize it is the score. Dylan Blackthorne's yeah. score. This is not some symphonic, melodious score that's happening. There's a lot of no. there's a lot of disjointed keys, uh, sounds that don't go together. At the 103 mark, I thought I just wanted to jump up and applaud you, uh, <laughs> you and Dylan, because we hear when an invite comes to a Ryan West show, all of a sudden. There is a violin plucking a la Bernard Herman and Hitchcock with Psycho. Yes. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God. Um, but everything. I, I mean, Dylan is one of those perfect little magicians living in his apartment in Brooklyn. And again, we just loved all the same scores. We loved all the same movies. And uh, he took. Uh, kind of my direction and my dreams and turn them uh, into reality and then some. I think I think he's such an incredible talent. I, I think I'll never, you know, be able to afford to work with him again. <laughs> and he's sitting in his uh, apartment scratching a guitar and ripping pieces of paper and bringing something that feels organic and textural and extreme to mm-hmm. the movie. And, and it becomes its own character. I'm so in love with his work. Oh, my God. Yeah, the first the bulk the first half of the film is essentially we hear more piano, but once we get to that yeah. one hundred three mark and we get that, uh, you know that violin, that yeah Hitchcockian note. Once we get that, then we get a lot more violin because violin, let's face it, it can be like nails on chalkboards, and it will freak <laughs> and it will freak you out. 
which is exactly what we have here with these characters and what's happening. But you all, he also yeah. brings in some bongos and some single note piano, just very tentatively. Really intriguing score because it is so unexpected and against the grain of the deliberateness of the story, the visuals, and the characters themselves in their motivations. Yeah, I really would love to get uh, his score on the Spotify and iTunes so people can enjoy it in their headphones because mm-hmm. uh, I received it and got to walk around New York City uh, with you know every little nuance and uh, every little string pluck and scratch. And it was a terrifying couple of days just enjoying this this genuine symphony. It is, it is a true symphony, uh, a, a real piece of art. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, how challenging was the editing? I know you're ro- working with Robert Taylor Higgins. How challenging was the edit? Because pacing is critical, especially when you have this deliberateness of visual, deliberateness of performance, deliberateness of dialogue, um, slightly o- yeah, off the grain, off time. of the uh, sound. Yeah. He, we met and uh, we hit it off. Uh, like I guess everybody on the set and on the crew, and uh, we were we've been editing this for I think a year and a half. And uh, wow. though that is tedious and painful, uh, it does give you time in between. Uh, I would I live in New York, and I have to fly down to Austin, Texas, where uh, RT lived at the time. And uh, the the space in between gave you time to kind of mature and let it marinate, and then you'd go back. And, uh, you know, we got, we, we shaved that thing down and polished it. Wow. I, it's the editing is so tight. Uh, and he'll be so happy to hear you think so. (laughs) And it, I love that. I love the tight editing because you let the camera work. The camera does the, essentially does a lot of the pacing where the camera holds on a painting with the languid touch. Um, it's that flow. You have that beautiful visual flow. Um, and Thank then you. the editing comes in behind that. So uh, it, it, it's really a wonderful marriage that you have here. So I'm Thank ki- you. I mean, that's all you can hope for as a director is that you get these hundreds of people that are working at completely different times in their lives and at different times on the calendar to all play the same song. And so, uh, I mean, what else, what else could anybody want to hear except that? That is so kind. You know what, this is your first film feature. Yeah. What was the learning curve like for you? God, I don't know. Uh, for me, it's, I felt very at home on set. Like I've been a, I've been an actor since I was six years old. So, uh, there, there, there was no um, hesitance for me. Uh, I, I'm kind of a fearless uh, person, and I, and I happen, you know, when it comes to art, and I uh, am good at decision making, and I know what I want. Um, you know, the challenges were technical and monetary and scheduling. Uh, everything else, you know, we were lucky too. Nobody, you know, died on set or had an overdose or just didn't <laughs> feel like showing up. <laughs> you know, so that's 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 good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was listening to your previous guests and you just, when you finish making your first, or I'm sure your second or third feature, you just want to make a a second one, a next one immediately, because you know, you could make a five times the movie, you know? Mm -hmm. So what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making painter that you will now or can take forward into those future projects that you better be doing? Um, I mean, there's the, there's the daily aspect of just treating every single person on set and everybody you work with in pre-production and post-production uh, with respect and, and respecting their work. Um, I think that makes for a really light set and a happy set, and it sucks the ego out of it. So everybody's working on an organic thing, working on it together. Um, you know, I, I watch the movie now and, 
and I see a lot of theater in it and I want to, you know, make, I want to lean on cinematography more. I want to move my camera more. I want to uh, be more aggressive with my desires because, you know, I want to be able to express myself a lot. I don't know. You learn, like like your previous guest said, you learn so much that uh, it's hard to process it all. It really is. Well, we are just about out of time here, but everybody can see Painter. It's out now on VOD and digital. Um, yes. But, and I can't give it away, but let me just say that the final shot of this film is my favorite shot. The last, time, the last film I saw this kind of shot was 60 years ago. Um, oh, my God. Uh, this, you know, you know, that final shot, it is through and through, through and oh, through, thank you. you know who I'm talking about. I do. I do. I do. And uh, I can't say it because it, it, it'll give it away. It, uh, yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> oh my God. Corey, just this film is so well done on every level. Oh, I can't. Debbie, thank you so much. What a wonderful phone call. <laughs> I a great interview. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you do next. Are you working on thank anything you. now? Are you? What's? I am. You know, since uh, we filmed uh, Painter, we finished almost two years ago now. I've written nine screenplays and a play wow. and a movie musical. So uh, I I just want to make all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the same time, I hope. No, no. But if that's what's required, I can do that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, Corey, this has been a pure joy. I hope you will come back on the show again. I would love to have you back. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me anytime. Um, Look at our Instagram. It's very cool and beautiful, too. It's at Painter Movie. Uh, and there'll be news there, and you get little clips and tastes of the movie, and it it really lives in that aesthetic as well. They did a good job on that. Oh, it it is just, it's oh, and by the way, who did all the artwork in this film? Uh, it's my cousin named Gabriel Gelati, and he's a phenomenal oh. painter who lives in L.A. He has been painting since he was six years old, so he's got thirty-five years of work. And we got to ransack literally thousands of paintings. And then he uh, did all of Aldous's work bespoke for the movie uh, and made them. It is not in his style. He really painted in the style of the character, which was amazing to watch. I got to watch him paint. And it's so it's a beautiful thing. And it's really lucky. And it's a relative. So it helps the budget because it's free. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, you, you, you buy him some dinner, you buy him a ramen. And he was happy. Oh, well, hey, you know, and if you go to the 99 hey. cent store, you can get three or four of them for a dollar. So <laughs> just some Ichiban. Yeah. Oh, my God. Corey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I can't wait thank you. to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Debbie. Thanks. Have a lovely day. You too, Corey. Bye-bye. Bye. And yes, Painter is stunning. It is. It, it truly is. It's described as a psychosexual thriller. Yeah, it's a psychological thriller. And we got people that have issues. It is so Hitchcockian. Um, fans of, of noir and thrillers uh, and Hitchcock are going to love this film. Love it. But I'm telling you, Betsy Randall, award-worthy performance by Betsy Randall. Uh, unlike anything you've seen from her. And we are all out of time, but very quickly before we go, I have to make mention the new, the new Rebecca is out. It is on Netflix. It is incredible. However, I'm going to give you a caveat here. It's directed by Ben Wheatley, written by Jane Goldman and Jane Shrapnel, based on Daphne du Maurier's book. Um, do not try your best not if you've seen Hitchcock's Rebecca with Joan Fontaine and Sir Lawrence Olivier try and George Stevens try not to compare it too much I know classic film fans are going to bemoan 
uh, this new, this beautiful color version from Ben Wheatley. Uh, there are, it is truer to the book, uh, as opposed to being a remake of the film. Mandalay becomes a character in the film. Uh, Sarah Green- Greenwood's production design is stunning. Uh, and Laurie Rose, as cinematographer, really captures that. The real standout in this film, I have to say, Julian Day's costume design. You will hear my interview from Julian either next week. It'll definitely be up on YouTube and on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Um, Julian's costumes, Irene did the costumes for Hitchcock's 1940 film. Julian's work puts Irene's to shame, and the costumes are very defining uh, as to character and story and tell their own story with color and fabric. Um, I can't wait for you to hear my, my interview with Julian. But classic films, you've been warned. Everybody else, Army Hammer, Lily James, um, Sam Riley, it is well worth your time on Netflix to check out Rebecca and not just once, but maybe even twice. And Kristen Scott Thomas is Mrs. Danvers. She will scare the bejeebus out of you. All right. That is all the time we have today. I'm next week. You better tune in. We've got Charlie and Vlad Parapolides joining us to talk about blood of Zeus, their anime series on Netflix. And we get them the day before the premiere. All right, so until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 